0: Well, if you are a guest of ours here in the room or in Williamsburg or Somerset or watching somewhere online, today we are in the last part of a series that we're calling The Table. And uh, if you haven't been here for any any of the other weeks, it's kind of like getting in on the last 10 minutes of the movie today, though my part will last a little longer than 10 minutes. But it will feel like the end of the movie. And uh, so if you haven't been here, let me just catch up on what we've been talking about. Uh, We've been talking about the fact that in our country, in, in our culture, it seems as though that we have a lot of people who disagree with one another. And not only that, but it seems as though that disagreement with one another has become dislike and disdain of one another simply because there's disagreement with one another. And one of the reasons why I was so passionate about wanting to do this series, uh, I believe that more than ever, we need to get back to reclaiming and rediscovering uh, the ability and the art of having a conversation. Because in our culture, we love to talk at and talk over and around and about and down to each other. But I think that we should get back to the ability to talk to one another. Because I'm a little bit afraid and concerned that we are on the brink a forfeiting a fundamental foundation from which we grow and experience progress. And that's the ability to negotiate ideas in a respectful and in a loving way. And that seems to be a little bit where we are in this culture. So the question is, what then should we do? What should we do? And as Jesus followers, as people who've placed their faith in Jesus, we should take our cues from Jesus. And what we've said is this, that Jesus stepped into his culture, a culture that was polarized by the forces of politics and religion, and Jesus, he began to do something extremely controversial. Jesus began to sit at tables with people he was not supposed to sit at tables with, and he began to have conversations. And these conversations and the company that Jesus had at the tables in which he attended, these types of interactions, they crossed tribal boundaries, both political boundaries and religious boundaries. And these conversations, they filled a lot of speculation and Jesus lost a lot of points as it related to his public reputation because he decided to sit at tables with people who were different from him, who disagreed with him, who didn't believe like he believed, who didn't behave like he behaved. And Jesus at those tables, he treated every single person as though they were created in the image of God because... They were created in the image of God. And because they were created in the image of God, Jesus showed every single person at his table and every single person that he interacted with in any context with the love of God. He showed every person the love of God because he believed every person was created in the image of God. It was at the table that Jesus, he gives us the example of how to serve up grace as the main course, to serve up grace as the feast, and to season grace with just the right amount of truth, so it makes the maximum difference. And this is what we should do as Christians. We should take our cues from Jesus. We should wrestle with the question, even after this series is over, when we start a brand new series next weekend, this series ends and is a distant memory, we should all continue to wrestle with the question, what does it mean to be Christian? Not what does it mean to be a Christian, but what does it mean to be Christian in our generation, in our culture? And there's a lot of debate about what it means to be Christian in our culture, but here's the good news for all of us. Jesus was very clear about what it means to be Christian, not only in his generation, but in every generation. And then as you read the other parts of the New Testament after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those who followed Jesus, who were eyewitnesses of his death, his burial, his resurrection, they too were very passionate and very clear in their teaching about what it means to be christian in every generation no matter the culture and so here's what jesus said about this is what it means to be christian he said this to his disciples in the upper room shortly before he's going to be betrayed he's going to be put to death but he takes his disciples to the upper room and he says this a new command i give you love one another as i have loved you so you must no questions no exceptions, no exceptions. So you must love one another. Now, let me say this for just a moment. For those of you who've been in the church a while, for those of you who've been in faith a while, I know that this is a verse that you have heard many, many times. Some of you have heard it more than others. Some of you grew up in a faith tradition. You never talked about this verse, which explains a lot about the experience that you had in your previous faith tradition. But for those of you who have heard this verse, here's what I want you to do. I want you. If, if the best you can to just put in fresh eyes for a moment and put on fresh ears and see this and hear this and experience this in a brand new way. I want you as much as you can. I, I want you to use your imagination. I want you to emotionally connect with this passage by imagining that there you are. You are there in the upper room because... In a strict sense of the term, you were there in the upper room along with the other disciples because you were in the heart of Jesus. And when Jesus gives this new command to his disciples, he was giving this command to all disciples of every subsequent generation that would come after those men in the room that night. So I want you to imagine that you are there and Jesus is looking you in the eye and Jesus is speaking to you in the clearest of terms and he's speaking with conviction and he's speaking with clarity. And he says these words to you, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, this is not necessarily new, though it is new. Because the Old Testament did talk about, under the Old Covenant, about loving your neighbor. But this was new in the sense of the emphasis that Jesus put on it. Because Jesus said, this is the most important thing. It is more important than every other thing. The most important part of your faith is to love one another the way that Jesus has loved you. Jesus elevated love above every other characteristic and attribute of the Christian experience. And that is a big deal, and that was new. It was new in the sense that Jesus Jesus made himself the example. He said, I want you to love the way that I have loved you. And it was new in terms of the extent. Because in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, the scriptures had said, your neighbor was your fellow Jewish people. God had told the Jewish people, your neighbor are other Jewish people. And if they're not Jewish, then there's not necessarily a responsibility to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus came along and said, okay, I'm going to redefine neighbor. Neighbor, if you're Jewish, is not only Jewish people, and neighbor, if you're Gentile, is not only Gentile people, but neighbor is everyone and anyone that you come into contact with. It's everyone and anyone. That is the extent of this new command, and this was new. This is clearly understood, but it is not easily practiced. This is not the golden rule of doing to others as you would have others do. To do unto you. This is the platinum rule. This is that you treat others the way that Jesus has treated you. And the significance of this cannot be understated and it cannot be overstated. Because here's what Jesus is saying to Jesus' followers of every generation you love to ask the question, What does law require? Right, you know, what what do the rules require? What do the commandments require? That's that's how many of us were taught to live our Christian faith. What does the law require me to do? He said, "No longer I'm going to give you a better question. You should ask this question. What does love require in this situation? When I'm gathered at a table with people, the person in front of me, the people around me, what does love require of me towards them?" It is a better question than what does law require? Because here's what Jesus would teach here's what the apostle paul who would come later would teach this is what the rest of the new testament would teach when you get love right you fulfill the law because the point of the law was to love your neighbor to love your neighbor as jesus had loved you and so jesus is saying this to his guys in the upper room and what's interesting is jesus is setting himself and his followers apart from everybody else in the world the religious people in jesus's day They hurt people in pursuit of purity. Now think about that. They hurt people in pursuit of purity. You've known church people, you've known Christians who have hurt other people in pursuit of purity, in pursuit of being good with God, in pursuit of defending truth, in pursuit of standing strong. The religious people in Jesus' day, many of them hurt people in pursuit of purity. But on the other hand, the pagans hurt people in pursuit of pleasure, In their pursuit of pleasure, they hurt one another and they hurt themselves. And Jesus said, okay, you're not gonna be like either one. You're not gonna be like the religious people who hurt people in pursuit of purity. And you're not gonna be like the pagan people who hurt people in pursuit of pleasure. Because to love people the way that I love people is to do no one harm. That's what love is. Paul would write a letter. We call it the book of Romans. And in chapter 13, you can read it on your own. He says, okay, let's talk about love. It is the fulfillment of the law. And if you wanna know love, Here's what you need to know about love. Love does no harm. Where did he get that from? He got it from Jesus. And Jesus, he would say to all of us that loving like Jesus, it always helps, it never harms. It always helps, it never harms. And so he says, here is a new commandment. And then he goes a little bit further and he says, by this, by what? By how you treat one another, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now. He said, this is how people are gonna know whether your faith is the real deal. This is how the world will legitimately, get this, this is how the world will legitimately gauge your faith and my faith. It will not be by the songs that we sing or the amount of scriptures that we've memorized or our tweets or our posts or our sermons. It's not gonna be by our political affiliations. The world will adequately and appropriately gauge the legitimacy of our faith by how we treat other people people now all of us we you know many of us we grew up in church and in the churches that many of us grew up in we had a hierarchy of spirituality right I mean there were certain people in the church that towered over others, I mean they were godly, they were, they were holy, they were a man, they were a woman of God, and, and there were all types of criteria that went into those observations. Sometimes it was because of how well they knew their Bible. Do you know how well they know their Bible? They are a man of God. I'm telling you, they can quote that Bible front to back. It is amazing. Look at her. She sings in the choir. She doesn't even have to look at the hymn book. She knows those verses, how godly she must be, and a lot of times we thought that the older people got, the more godlier they got. But we just didn't understand they were just too tired to sin and, and, and they got so old they just didn't have it in them anymore they were thinking I sure like to sin but I just don't have enough energy to sin and, and all the younger people were looking at them saying God, I wish I could be like them and the old people were thinking, I wish I could be like them and, and we never knew how much we had in common and, and we tried to judge one another and size one another up and here's what Jesus said the world will gauge your faith appropriately by how you treat other people. And so Jesus said, if you wanna know what it means to be Christian, look at me. Jesus would say, if you wanna know what it means to be Christian, listen to me. If you wanna know what it means to be Christian, learn from me. Take your cues from how I treated people. Take your cues from whom I shared a table with, how I interacted with people. And so he spoke those words in the upper room, and you know what? The men in that room never forgot the words that Jesus spoke. You know how I know? I've read the rest of the New Testament. And for those of you who have read the rest of the New Testament, this teaching that Jesus just spoke, not only to his disciples, but to all of us, it keeps surfacing throughout the remainder of the New Testament. It keeps popping up as the main thrust, the big idea, the most important thing. And the reason I know they never forgot it is because they wrote about it. They wrote it down. And here's another thing that I know. When you read through the book of Acts, which is the history of the early Christians, the early church, they didn't always get it right. They didn't get this love thing right. It took time for them to get it right. Matter of fact, if you read the book of Acts, it took 15 years for them to deal with racism in the church. 15 years in, there's still racism in the church between Jewish people and Gentile people. There's racial tension in the church 15 years in with people. Like Peter, James, and John, and Nathaniel leading the way. It took 15 years for racism to be dealt with, to be talked about, for the church to develop a position about it. They didn't always get it right. It took time for them to get it right. Because you know what? Loving people the way that Jesus has loved you, it isn't always clear and it isn't always obvious. It wasn't to them, it won't be for you. But you know what they did? They did what all of us should do. They did the hard work that love requires because love is hard work. And they did the hard work that love requires and they made the difficult changes that love sometimes requires. They practiced self-restraint, the self-restraint that sometimes love requires. They did what love requires and they refused to do what love does not require. They did the hard work of love because love is hard work. And you know what they did? When they began to figure it out, though they never got it perfect, when they began to figure it out, they passed it on to the next generation. And the world changed. But before the world changed, 60 years later, after that event, after that night in the upper room when Jesus spoke those words, 60 years later, Peter's dead, Paul's dead. We believe that all the other apostles that were there in that room that night are dead except for one. His name was John. John. And John was an elderly man, and he was living in the city of Ephesus, and we believe, according to church tradition, that after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, that John took Mary, the mother of Jesus, and relocated to Ephesus. Ephesus became his second home. He became the pastor, the elder of the church in Ephesus, and so John, he's he's way up in life. It's somewhere around 90 AD, 60 years after Jesus died, 60 years after the resurrection, 60 years after Jesus has gone back into heaven. All the other disciples are dead, and John, he writes a letter as an old man from Ephesus to Christians who were trying to figure out what it means to be Christian in a difficult cultural context. And 60 years after Jesus said this in the upper room, we're going to hear the words of John, and I want you to listen for the echo of Jesus in the background of what John is saying, because he never forgot these words, and he never let Christians in the first century forget the words that Jesus spoke. And here's what he wrote to those Christians 60 years after Jesus first said the words in the upper room. He said, dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. Since the beginning of what? Since the beginning of their faith. He said, this old command is the message you have heard. This is what John is saying. I'm not inventing some new teaching. I'm not inventing some new controversial doctrine. He said, no, I'm giving you a a new command, but it's not a new command. It's actually an old command because you have heard this command since you came to faith in Jesus. And really, John would say, it really predates your faith in Jesus because this new command, which is really an old command, it began with Jesus. When Jesus spoke to us that night in the upper room, when he said, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. He said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna regurgitate this new command, which is no longer new to you. This is an old command. You have heard this over and over and over again. Just like some of you. You have heard this over and over and over again. And there's a danger in that. There's a liability in that. And John didn't want the century that he was living in, the first century, he didn't want the Christians to just gloss over this teaching that they had heard so many times before. He says, so I'm giving you a new command, which is not a new command, it's an old command. You've known about it for a long time. It started with Jesus. He said, yet, yet I am writing you a new command. Well, hold on, John, I thought it was a new command, but it was really an old command, but you're coming back and you're saying it's a new command. Yet I'm writing you a new command. It's truth is seen in him, and him being Jesus, and it's also seen in you, because the darkness is passing, And the true light is already shining. Now, this is a really cool way of writing, and we believe that John either wrote this by hand, or maybe he dictated this to a scribe, and and they wrote these words for him. But here's what John is saying. This is a new commandment, not to you, but to the world. It's not new to you, but it's new to the world, because there is a brand new reality that's starting This church, this Jesus movement is a brand new thing and the world will not recover from it. And John gives us a picture of what this whole thing looks like. He says, our Christian faith is like the sun rising on a dark world. And he says, as that sun gets higher and higher, the world gets brighter and brighter. And here's what John is saying. He says, when you love, when I love, when we love, we have this incredible grand opportunity That as we love, we drive back darkness. As we love one another, as we love others, we drive back the darkness. And not only do we drive back the darkness, but we drive back the deeds that are committed in the darkness. He said, this is how powerful this is. This is how important this is. This is how incredible of an opportunity this is for your generation in this climate, in this culture right now. He says, when you love, you push back darkness. When you love, you push back the deeds that are committed in the darkness. And then John, he goes further, he says, anyone who claims to be in the light, that is to be enlightened, to have faith, to follow Jesus. Anyone who claims to be in the light, but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. You don't need a Greek lexicon to know what John just said. You don't have to have a commentary to know what John means. John said, you can claim to have faith in Jesus. You can claim to have faith in your heavenly father. You can claim to follow Jesus, to be a Christian. He says, but if you hate other people, you're still living in darkness because that type of behavior is incompatible with those who are actually living in the light. And so I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking what I would be thinking if I were there. You've got like a, a, oh, thank goodness. I I don't really hate anybody. I don't really hate anybody. I don't hate anybody. So I think I'm safe. That was close. I I don't hate anybody. But but here's what the word hate means that John uses. It means to disregard someone. It means to dismiss someone is unimportant. It means to disrespect someone. Now we're all thinking, oh, no. Really? Google me. Check it out. Right? Facts are our friends. Google can be your friend. Although you may not want to Google it. You may just want to just believe that I don't know what I'm talking about and move on and feel better about yourself. But but he says this means to dismiss, disregard, disrespect. He says that type of behavior and sentiment is incompatible with faith. It's incompatible with those in the light who follow Jesus. He said if you mistreat people, you misunderstand Jesus. You misunderstand the scriptures. You misunderstand your heavenly father. He says when you walk in the light, there is nothing in you to make you stumble. That is when you love well, All is well. When you get love right, you're getting it right. That's what he's saying. Light and love go together, darkness and hate go together. And so probably he understood what they were thinking, just like many of us are thinking, we're still thinking, well, what in the world does it mean to love like Jesus loved us? Well, what what is the love thing, you know? We hear about it on Hallmark and and we read about it in books and there's all kinds of love songs about it from the 80s that were better than any other generation of love songs that exist on planet, you know, and all of that, can I get a witness? And, and, And you know, you got all that 80s music for a context of your theology on love, you know? Anyway, I, I could just break into song after song, but I am not going to do that. So you, you've got this idea of what you think love is, but John says, okay, let's just, let's, just, let's just skip ahead a little bit. He says, this is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters or for one another. And here's what John says. John says, if you wanna know what love is, if you wanna know truly what love is, here's what John says. John says that love is not a feeling. See, we love to think that love is a feeling. We love to think about that from the time, you know, we're teenagers and we have our first first crush and our first love and and then we get married and there's there's butterflies in our stomach and and we think that love is a feeling. Oh, I have these these feelings. I just can't control my feelings for you and it's incredible. And even when we kiss, there's those butterflies, but then you got married and the butterflies, they died. What happened to the butterflies? And and then you you took a trip and you rented a hotel room and the butterflies came back and it was incredible. And and then they died again. And it's like, now you don't know if they're ever coming back or not. It's like, what happened to the butterflies? And and then some of you husbands, some of you wives, you think, I just just don't love them anymore because I don't feel it. You know, I don't feel it. You know, I don't feel it anymore. So I don't, I don't love. I don't feel it, man. You feel me? And, And so John would say, "Shut up. Love is not a feeling. Love is not sappy. The love that I'm talking about is not sentimental. It's not gushy. It's not mushy. It's not something you just put in a card." John said, you want to know what love is? Let me tell you what love is. Love is painful. Love is brutal. Love is radical. Love is costly. It is messy. It is bloody. It is hard to watch. John would say, I was there that day at Calvary. I was there that day that Jesus laid down his life. I watched them drive the nails in his hand and drive the nail through his feet. I watched him wear a crown of thorns. I watched them put a spear in his side. I watched them spit in his face and punch him. i tell you what love is. That's what love is. And it's not always pretty. And it's surely not sappy. But if you want to know what love is, if you want to know what Jesus was talking about, if you wanna know what it means to be Christian, just let me tell you what love is. Love is action. Love isn't what you say and love isn't how you feel. Love is what you do. Love is self-sacrifice. Love is saying that you and you and all of you are more important than me and meaning it. Love is Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's love. Love is saying that your life is more important than mine. And I will do for you what you can't do for you. And the debt that you can't afford to pay, I will pay for you. I will do what is best for you, even if it hurts me. John said, That's how we know love. We look at the cross, and we look at the moment that Jesus laid down his life for the world, for his enemies for those who had rejected him and rebelled against him. And he says, that's what I want you to think about when you think about love. See, my impulse is self-preservation. And anytime that we start acting in self-preservation in relationships, things are dead in the water. Husbands and wives that are acting in self-preservation... You know, I'm not going to open myself up. I'm not going to get too close. I don't want to get hurt. So I'm not, I'm not going to give anything because I'm afraid that you'll take from me. Anytime the friends, you know, they start acting in self-preservation. Anytime anybody in any kind of relationship starts acting in self-preservation, things are dead in the water. That's my impulse. That's your impulse. But you know what the impulse of love is? Not self-preservation. Self-sacrifice. John would say love is a choice. That's what Jesus did. Jesus decided. He didn't act on a feeling. Jesus decided. And Jesus did the difficult work, the hard work that love required. And Jesus laid down his life out of love for others. John said, so when he says a new command to love like he's loved you, if you want a reference point on that, Look at what Jesus did for you and did for the world on the cross. So John goes on, he says, dear friends, let us then love, let us then love one another for love comes from God. This is, this is incredible. This is such profound teaching John gives us. He said, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Here's what John's saying. Love is not personality driven Some of you guys, some of you men, you want to cop out with your wives, you want to cop out with your children, and you talk about, you know, I'm just not a loving guy, you know, I just don't love, you know, it's not not the kind of person I am, my dad, my dad wasn't real loving, my grandfather wasn't real loving, you know, you know, my childhood, And, and, and we've got all of these excuses, but here's what John says, he strips away all the excuses, he says, love is not personality driven, love is not genetic Love is relationship driven. If you have a relationship with Christ, if you have a relationship with your heavenly father, he says, that's where love comes from. Because you receive love. And not only did you receive love, but you become a channel and a funnel through which God's love is shown to other people. He says, love comes from God. It doesn't come from you. You don't have the capacity to love. I don't have the capacity to love that way. God has the capacity to love that way. And when you receive God's love, you receive a divine capacity to love the way that God has loved you. So there's no excuses. He says, if you know God, you know love, and you know how to love. And the more that you know about God, the more you will know about how to love others the way that you have been loved. So he keeps going. He says, whoever does not love, does not no God, because God is love. John's tough. John's strong. John's to the point. He said, don't kid yourself. He said, I don't care if you walk the aisle. I don't care if you signed the card, don't care if you took communion, don't care if you've been baptized enough that Moby Dick knows your name. He says, I, I don't care what you've done. I don't care whatever hoops you jumped through. You joined the church. It was in revival. It was whatever. You prayed that prayer. You know, Jesus got out of hell free. You know, all that. And you, you did whatever somebody told you needed to do. He said, If you did all of that, but you don't love others, he said, you, you, You're kidding yourself. So, Trevor, I don't like that. Well, I'm just telling you, I don't like it either. Take it up with John. He said, God is love. He said, He's the essence, the expression, and the embodiment of love. He says the very epicenter of God's character is love. Now, I want you to think about it, how did God love you? How did God love you? Didn't he love you with no strings attached? No strings attached, wasn't it? Did he love you when you didn't deserve it? Didn't he love you when you were unlovely? Didn't he love you when you were wrong? Didn't he love you when you didn't even love him? I think so, because that's how you love me. God is love. You know how you've been loved. Now you are positioned to be able to love because of that love. You are most like God when you love. You are most holy and most spiritual and most pure and most righteous when you love. Here's the point he's trying to make. The greatest expression and evidence of faith is love. The greatest expression and the greatest evidence of faith is love. And so John says, you got to wrestle this to the ground. And you got to come to grips with the reality that is your reality. He says, because to know God is to know his love and it is to love others. And then he comes back and he keeps on teasing this point out. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. Okay, John, tell us again, because he just keeps bringing us back. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Because you know what? How else would we have known? How else would we have known that God was not angry with us? That God was for us? That God had a plan for us? Unless he had sent Jesus into the world. And Jesus showed up in flesh, and as Eugene Peterson, who passed away in recent days, said in the Message Bible, he said, God moved into the neighborhood. Jesus came and he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That what is true of me is true of God, and what is true of God is true of me. And I love you with no strings attached. I love you even though you're not even in love with me. I'm gonna go all the way even though you're not willing to go any of the way. I'm gonna do the hard work of love. God saw something wrong and you know what God did? God did something about it. He bankrupted heaven. He bankrupted heaven with his son and he sent his son into the world and Jesus rolled up his sleeves. He got in the mess and he did the hard work that love requires. And John said, that's how we know love. This is our reference point. This is our true north. This is what we come back to. John says, this is not love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That God took the initiative. God took the first step. You know what John was saying? If there were a million steps between you and God, God sent Jesus to take every single last One of them. Some of us grew up in churches that sang the song, when I could not come to him, he came to me. When I did not love him, he loved me. When I ran away, he ran after me. John said, that's how we know love. And dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How can we church people come into our churches and celebrate the love of God, sing incredible lyrics about the love of God, preach sermons about the love of God and shake our hands and say amen and leave out the doors of our local churches all across this nation and withhold the love of God that we just got through celebrating. This is John's point. He said, if you can intellectually begin to grasp God's love for you, and if you can begin to emotionally connect to what that means that God loves you, that you understand that God is okay with you, that God is not angry with you, that God is for you, that you don't have to be afraid of God, you don't have to be afraid about your past, your present, your future, that God loves you. If you get that, You begin to sense, I have to love others the way I have been loved. And here's what John is trying to continue to say in many different ways. Love isn't just refusing to harm others. See, we think, okay, I I wanted to say it, but I didn't say it, I loved them. Love isn't just refusing to harm others. Love is acting to help others. This is the gospel. God just didn't decide not to do anything to us because of our sin. He decided to step in and help. That's what love does. Love isn't just about not harming. Love is about getting in there and helping. And so John, he says again, we love. Why, John? Because he first loved us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Some of us have been in it so long Some of us know the chapter and verse. We've heard that, he loved us first. We love because God first loved us. We know this very well, but we feel this very little. We feel it very little. We don't do the hard work of being thoughtful about our faith, of thinking about how we've been loved to better understand how we also should love. So John says, whoever, me, you, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother and sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, oh, and here's where he's trying to get us to, cannot love God whom they have not seen. The test of loving Jesus is loving like Jesus. The test of knowing Jesus is loving like Jesus. Let me just ask you a question. Does this feel sappy to you? Does this feel sentimental to you? Does this feel mushy and over-emotional to you? Does this feel soft to you? Does this feel like compromise to you? Does this feel like lowering the rung on the ladder to the lowest common denominator? Does this sound like Woodstock love fest to you? No, 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 doesn't to me. Feels like he's raising the bar. Feels like it's clear, feels like it's demanding. Feels like it demands self-sacrifice. Feels like it means I have to vest myself of my own rights for the good of other people, even if it is not to my benefit. This doesn't feel like wiggle room. This doesn't feel like, ooh, you know. No, this feels tough. This feels hard. He says, if you aren't loving visible people, why would you ever think you're loving invisible God? And then he wraps it up and he says, and he has given us this command. He kind of brings us right back again. Anyone who loves God must also love their brothers and sisters. If you love, you got to be willing to do the hard work of love. You gotta be willing to do what it takes. You gotta be willing to understand that being right is never an opportunity to treat someone wrong. That an act of unlove over the truth to defend the truth betrays not only love, but it betrays truth itself. We have been given a command to love the way that Jesus has loved and it requires thoughtfulness and it requires hard work John wrote those words from Ephesus a short time after he wrote 1st John 2nd John and 3rd John the Roman emperor arrested John sent him to work prison on an island called Patmos it's going to be on Patmos that he's going to write the final book of the New Testament the revelation of Jesus Christ He's released towards the very end of his life and he returns back to his second home of Ephesus. And we're told through church tradition and church history that on the first day of the week, on the Lord's day when the church was gathered, that his disciples would carry John to the local church, unable to walk himself and barely able to speak. And they would allow the last living apostle of Jesus Christ to speak to the church. And week after week, in a frail voice, with as much volume as he could muster, he would say, one thing, little children, let us love one another. And that's all he could get out. And as church people so often do, we get tired of hearing things. And finally, one of his disciples one day and looked at John and said, John, you say the same thing every week. Why do you say the same thing every week about love one another, love one another? And it is said that John said, if love alone be done, love alone is enough. For love had been the way of Jesus It had been the message of Jesus and it had been the one command of Jesus. And His disciples were unwilling to ignore that command. And they loved. And when they loved, the world could not ignore them. And the world began to change. They tore down walls of racism. They tore down the walls of tribalism between those of upper status and lower status. They tore down the walls between Jews and Gentiles and men and women and adults and children, between the educated and the not educated, between the rich and the poor. They began to tear down the walls and the world could not ignore it. Christians, they walked into the forests and they picked up babies Many times, baby girls that had been left behind for the wild animals to devour, and they picked them up, and they wrapped them, and they took them home, and they raised them as their own sons and daughters, and the world couldn't ignore it. When the plagues hit the Roman Empire, And the pagans fled the villages. It was the Christians that fled into the villages to care for the sick and the poor. At their risk of losing their very own lives. And the world couldn't ignore it. They did the hard work that love requires. They were courageous with their love. Let me ask a question. Are you courageously... Loving others, will you have the courage to get out of your comfort zone and invite people to your table? Will you have the courage to clear your schedule with enough margin to have time to bring people to your table? Will you have the courage to hold to your convictions and to hold to your positions and your opinions, but yet never place them so high that it is at the expense of unloving someone else? Will you have the courage to open up seating to anyone and everyone to sit at your table? Will you have the courage to be disappointed, to be stung, to feel the pain, to be taken advantage of? Will you have the courage to forgive when you need to forgive and to be reconciled when you need to be reconciled? Will you have the courage even when people talk about you and family members distance themselves from you? Will you have the courage when it harms your personal reputation because you decided to love others the way that Jesus decided to love you? Will you have the courage to love no matter the cost, to go big on grace and season it with salt? Will you have the courage to see every person made in the image of God and show every person the love of God will you have the courage to lay down your life for the good of those around you. This week, just this week, a white man takes the life of two black folks and turns to someone who's white and says, whites don't kill whites. Just this week, just this week, bombs are mailed to political leaders all over this country. Just yesterday, a gunman walks into a synagogue and because someone was of a different faith, took the lives of innocent people. Just this week, if the world ever needed hope, it needs it today. And if the world ever needed love it needs it today and if the world ever needed the church to be the church the world needs the church to be the church starting today and it begins with a command to love one another as we've been loved because a single act of courageous love could be the beginning to something extraordinary amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I am a wretch I am vile I am unclean I am unrighteous and I am unholy there is nothing good in me I am selfish, I am petty, I am at times arrogant, at times rude and mean. But when God knew all of that about me, He loved me anyway. And He says, go love the way that you've been loved. Do the hard work that love requires. Heavenly Father, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, would you let the Holy Spirit take your word? Take the words of Jesus deep into our hearts. God, even though we wrap up a series today, may we not leave this series behind. God, may we open up seats at our table and love the way that Jesus has loved us. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us. God, where we need to repent, may we repent. God, where we're not getting this right, help us to get it right. And we pray that we would do it for Jesus' sake because of how he has loved us. Help us to have the courage to love. In Jesus' name.